0: Välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Farohsad och jag är programansvarig för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Ida Linder. kväll ska ni få höra den pakistanska författaren Mohsin Hamid i samtal med Valerie Cheyune Backström. Varmt välkomna! En morgon vaknade Anders, en vit man, och upptäckte att han hade blivit mörk och omisskännligt brun. Upptäckten skedde gradvis och sedan plötsligt. Först när han sträckte sig efter telefonen. Som en känsla av att gryningsljuset gjorde något märkligt med färgen på hans underarm. Och sedan chockartat som en sekunds övertygelse om att det låg någon bredvid honom i sängen. En man mörkare, en skrämmande tanke men en som ändå måste vara omöjlig. Den andra rörde ju på sig samtidigt som man själv rörde på sig, var inte en person, inte en annan person, utan bara han anders, vilket utlöste en våg av lättnad. För den föreställningen om en andra person i sängen var inbildning var förstås den om att han hade bytt färg också det En synvilla eller en fantasi som uppstått i det oljiga mellanrummet Mellan dröm och vakenhet Om det inte hade varit för att han nu hade telefonen i sin hand Och hade vänt på kameran Och såg att ansiktet som mätte hans blick Inte alls var hans eget Anders kastade sig ur sängen Och rusade mot badrummet men hejdade sig Tvingade sig att sakta gå ner Gå en mer normalt med lugna steg och han gjorde det för att bevisa att han hade kontroll över situationen för att tvinga tillbaka verkligheten med ren viljestyrka eller för att springandet sk- sk- skrämde honom ännu mer oåterkalleligen förvandlade honom till att jaga ett jagat djur det visste han inte. Badrummet kändes tryckt i all sin sunkighet. Sprickorna i kaklet och smutsen i fogarna. Den intorkade tandkrämsranden på utsidan av handfötet. Medicinskåpets inre var synligt och spegeldörren halvöppen och Anders... Han höjde handen och vände sin spegelbild rätt. Den föreställde inte en Anders som han kände igen. Känslorna välde upp. Inte i första hand chock eller sorg... Det fanns där vissligen också, men framförallt väckte det nya ansiktet hans ilska eller snarare vrede, en plötslig modlisten vrede. Han ville döda den färgade mannen som hade trängt sig in i hans hem, ville släcka det liv som bodde i den andres kropp, utplåna allt utom sig själv så som han hade varit förut och han drömde knytnäven rakt i ansiktet Så att det sprack och hela skåpet, hyllor, spegel och allt hamnade i snett som en tavla efter en jordbävning. Anders stod kvar. Smärtan i handen dämpades av den våldsamma vreden och han kände att han darrade. En skävling så svag att den först knappt var märkbar men sedan starkare. Som en livsfarlig frossa, som om han var ute i minusgröder och på väg att frisa jäl och den drev honom tillbaka till sängen ner under täcket och där låg han sedan länge gömd med en intensiv önskan om att den dag som just hade börjat aldrig aldrig någonsin skulle börja.
1: Hello Musin. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. It's a great, great pleasure to have you on stage with me. Thank you. Uh, you were born 1971 in Lahore, Pakistan, and spent your childhood there and in the US, but also lived many years in London. Um, you debuted in the year 2000 with the novel *Moth Smoke, uh, and you've been shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice. You won several other awards, and also been named one of foreign policy's 100 leading global thinkers, as well as one of our generation's most inventive and gifted writers by the New York Times. Kind of (laughs) great. But uh, tonight, you're here to talk about your latest novel, The Last White Man. And in it, as we just heard, uh, Anders wakes up and... In a Kafkaesque scene, has become a brown man. How did you come up with that idea?
2: So, um, you know, we we never know, uh, <laughs> right? And first of all, I want to just uh, uh, appreciate the. Reading of of the book in in Swedish, um, I've never never heard my book read in Swedish before. Um, it definitely sounds better than in English. So, uh, Marquez used to say about his translator uh, Gregory Rabassa that um, he writes my novels better than I do, and uh, you know you always feel that that's happening with translations. Um, so, even though I'm not exactly sure, of course, where the book comes from, I I, I think that. Um, the idea for the book uh, began around uh, the events of September 11th, 2001. And so uh, I had, at that point, um, I moved back to America when I was 18 uh, to go to college, and then I went to law school. I was working in New York City. Um, I'd been to these sort of elite universities. I had this well-paying job in in, in Manhattan. And, you know, I was aware of, you know, racial discrimination. But it didn't affect my life in a particularly meaningful way. You know, it, it's a bit like uh, you can be aware that there's you know, great white sharks in the ocean, but unless one comes by you when you're on your surfboard, you, you know, it's sort of a theoretical thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and so you know, I, I was free to uh, have the job that I wanted, to rent the apartment that I wanted, to you know, date the person that I wanted. It, I didn't feel it as, as, a, as a meaningful constraint, even though I knew, of course, that outside of New York and outside of my little bubble, there were all sorts of things going on, um, but in America in those days, the race was very much a black white binary and If you were brown, uh, even if you had a Muslim name, you weren 't really in the binary. it depended sort of where you were, how things played out for you and After nine eleven you know suddenly, uh, everything changed. I was you know being stopped at every airport and held for hours in immigration, and you know people were get up in the subway and change seats if you came with a backpack on the weekend and a bit of a stubble. Um, and uh, and I, I hadn't changed. and I thought, you know, uh, this is so weird. Um, and I realized, I guess, then that it doesn't matter if you haven't changed. Um, y- your identity and what it means, to a certain extent, is determined by how people look at you. And that can change overnight. And I spent some months, you know, hoping things would go back to normal, go back to how they were before, maybe more than months. Uh, But they didn't go back to normal. And after a certain point, I, in a sense, wasn't even sure I wanted them to go back to normal. I guess I I had realized that I had been kind of partaking in many of the benefits of whiteness and had been kind of complicit in this system. And... um, I didn't necessarily want to become complicit again. Now that I'd seen that the system was around me, I didn't want to unsee it and pretend that, okay, everybody will be nice to me, but somebody else is being the victim of this system. And so I wrote a novel in 2007, it came out called The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which talks about a Pakistani man living in New York who feels he has to pick sides and eventually goes back to Pakistan. Um, But... That was somebody who suddenly is seen differently, um, who looks like me. But as the years went by, I realized that it it wasn't just about people like me, that um, there was another side to the story. People who, in many ways, felt that that their whiteness was under threat. Uh, You know, when Barack Obama became president of America, if you think of whiteness as a kind of hierarchy, to have a black man as president means the hierarchy is really unsettled. Or if you think of whiteness in a way as a kind of um, uh, cultural superiority, to have young people listening to hip hop music and wearing you know, uh, a fashion from different places and speaking in a lingo that's different, suggests that that cultural supremacy is sort of you know, being challenged. Um, or if you just look at the next generation and you think it's more brown and mixed and it doesn't look like the older generations did. In so many ways, I, I, I guess I came to realize that um, the crisis that Chingiz faced, there was a mirror image of that crisis happening to many other people, giving rise to you know Donald Trump and make America great again and Brexit in Britain and so many movements. And so I, I guess I wanted to come back to this topic and to explore the other side of it. That, um, uh, that, in a sense, this heightened tribalism and racialization that we're seeing comes out of um, a real fear of a loss of, of, of race and a loss of belonging. And and the novel was, was born out of, out of that.
1: Yeah, because I feel one of the interesting things with that book is that it really takes serious... Uh, all the things that are invested in race and here it is what white people have invested in yes. the whiteness and what it is to mourn that whiteness uh, and how was it to grapple with these like very real questions uh, in a fictional format
2: so it was very interesting for me I think I wanted to do it um, I was very curious about it and you know we these days in a sense we tend to think of if you imagine that literature has more than two but let's say two major strands one of those strands we might kind call a kind of um, representative purpose to tell the story of what it is to be me or what it is to be my kind of person and that kind of person can be a Muslim or it can be a woman or it can be a novelist or it can be a drug addict or whatever but it's It is, let me take me and my group and tell our or my story. And that's a hugely important part of fiction. Particularly, it's important when a particular group has had itself silenced or not been allowed to tell its stories. But we, I think, make a mistake when we imagine that that's the only uh, mission of fiction. Because there's another mission, which is not what you might call the representative impulse, but a kind of transgressive impulse. The idea of, you know, what is it like to be not me? So my son is 10 years old and until recently he would sort of come into my study and he would roar at me and he would be a little T-Rex, you know, and his veins on the side of his neck would stand out and he would look at me with this deadly, you know, gaze and he would roar and the spit would sort of come from his mouth and his jaw would, you know, and he would just look at me and I, I would be petrified, you know, sitting at my computer working on some chapter and he would just, you know, look until it was clear that I had descended into a puddle of fear and then he would stomp, you know, into the living room. Now, why did he do this? You know, it's not that he's descended from the T-Rex and he was expressing the story of the T-Rex. Like like any child, he wanted to be not him. He wanted to be a T-Rex. Which is the same thing that happens when children get together and they play being pirates, or they have a tea party, or they have, you know, be space explorers, or whatever. Um, Children get together, two, three, four, they have this make-believe world, and they go into this world. And when we grow up, we mostly stop doing that. Uh, It's a childish thing to do. And the time that we do do that, really, is when we read and write books. When we read and write books, we again play make-believe. And so, um, uh, and we're very drawn to this make-believe. We seem to enjoy it. Um, And and we're learning more and more that, you know, uh, if we image the brains of people making make-believe, very strange things are happening in their brain. And uh, I think that it's partly because we recognize as adults that ourself is partly a fiction. We kind of have made up the story. You know, I'm Mosin, I'm a nice guy, I write books, you know. But, but then, someday, I haven't slept enough and somebody, you know, uh, cuts me off and I'm driving home and I'm honking viciously at them and I'm a real jerk. And, uh, and I think, oh, I wasn't myself, you know. I was <laughs> but, but I was myself. Yeah. You know, it's just, that, it's just that myself is a fiction that I tell. We all have a story. So... <clears throat> So I think, you know, for me, this desire to, um, to transgress, to be old when I'm young, or to be young when I'm old, or to be a woman, or to be you know, somebody living in a different country, or to wear a different skin, has always been very attractive. Um, it's always been interesting to me. And, and I think it's interesting to people generally. And so I wanted to explore this idea, in a way, from the inside. Um, what might it be for these four white characters in the book, Anders, his girlfriend, Una, Anders' father, Una's mother, to be in this world where people are suddenly becoming dark? Um, And it didn't seem to me like a foreign world. Um, I think of my own grandparents, watching the society around them change. I think of myself watching my children with their tech-enabled, glued-to-their-screen childhood. you know, everybody feels that they're losing their thing. So, so yeah, that was my way in. And, and when you said, you know, uh, my, my goal was to do it as sympathetically as possible. Not, um, not to forgive necessarily, the reader has to decide whether they forgive these characters, um, but not to judge them from the outside. To sort of show the character only from the inside. And then the reader can decide what they make of these people.
1: Because uh, I thought about one of the theses in this novel, and maybe in Exit West as well, is that we're all migrants. Mm. Uh, even the person that stays on the same street until old age is a migrant in time. Yeah. Maybe that's also what you're brushing upon.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, we, um, we imagine that there are natives and migrants. But in this particular second, none of us are natives. You know, none of us has been alive at this moment before. We've all tumbled into this evening never having been here before. I've never been 51 before. Um, you know, If I live to be 70 or 80, I will never have been 70 or 80 before. And even if you've never moved, let's say you've grown up you know, three blocks away in Stockholm and you were born 60 years ago. There's no doubt that you're a migrant. The world around you has completely changed. Um, you know, I don't know when this neighborhood was sort of flattened and redeveloped into uh, its current form, but you know, within the last hundred years, and perhaps much more recent than that.
1: Yeah, more recently.
2: Yeah, so within living memory. Yeah. So some children would have grown up on these streets who can still walk these streets, and when they walk these streets, you cannot say they're not migrants. Of course, they are. And and so there's a sense that we have a potential in a way of recognizing this in each other. Um, Just as, in a sense, for me, in these four white characters to explore their feeling of loss and their feeling of of, um, confusion and their feeling of anger and and the different reactions they have, uh, uh, to me, uh, was, was not that difficult. It was something, I guess you could say, I could relate to.
1: Um, I also want to ask you, because one thing that you're not that interested in the book is why they become brown. It's just a fact. But uh, how important has science fiction been to you? Because I know you started to write science fiction as a child, I guess. or Yeah, you?
2: my first novel yeah. um, was, a, you know, after watching Star Wars uh, in California in the 1970s, you know, I, I, in my school notebook, I would make these uh, stick figure illustrated kind of space operas. Um, uh, and I, I love science fiction and fantasy as a kid. Um, it's, an, I'm not exactly sure if what I write is, is sort of science fiction, uh, you know, fantasy. Uh, what uh, the way I think of it is that, um, I think that, as I said before, you know, reality isn't real. Uh, the the more we understand how the human mind works, the more we have to agree with the ancient mystics who told us that, you know, much of this is just a fantasy. Because, I mean, you know, for example, you know, this thing is is, you know, solid wood. Except we know that it's mostly empty space with sort of atoms scattered at great distances across that empty space. You know, or these genes I can say are blue. Except that we know that there's no such thing as blue. Blue is the way in which my brain Tells me that a particular frequency wavelength of light is being reflected off of an object. And I have no way of knowing if you think blue looks the way that I think blue. We both we will call this thing blue because it's reflecting the same type of light. But there's no way for you and I to know if you know, maybe this is purple for you. Yeah. You know? So what I would call purple. So, um, uh, and similarly, you know, we see all these things when we look at how people make decisions. Um, that, uh, that very often there are reptilian parts of the brain that are firing before the part of the brain that makes us aware of a, of a decision. So we might think, I've decided. Whereas actually it was decided for us by a part of our primitive brain. And then we create the illusion of uh, a decision and will afterwards. Anyway, all of this is to say, not that you know we live in some cosmic soup and nothing can be known, but that that things are consider- considerably more weird than we allow ourselves normally in our reality to acknowledge. And we see this, you know, if, if suddenly someone close to us is, suffers a tragic illness or, uh, you know, some terrible uh, thing happens to them, reality rips right open. Suddenly what we call real isn't real. The whole world changes overnight. When the pandemic came, you know, and everybody was stuck at home. Like reality was suddenly torn asunder. It was impossible that flights could be stopped between countries, it was impossible that schools could be shut for like months, uh, that offices would be, but yet it happened. So I guess in my fiction what I try to do is not so much, uh, I, I don't object to the label of science fiction uh, or fantasy or anything like that, but what I try to do is I try to take reality, put just a very slight crack into it, um, and, and that that crack, in a way, hopefully, allows us to see things as they are a little bit better. That that crack lets us be flexible in how we think about things. And in Exit West and, and in The Last White Man, it's something in the physical world. These doors open up in Exit West and you can go from one country to the next. And in The Last White Man, people become dark. But in other novels, it happens in different ways. So in, you know, in Mott Smoke, there's a kind of surreal trial which couldn't really be happening like this. And in The Latin Fundamentalist, uh, this Pakistani man is speaking to an American man in a cafe, you know, like a dramatic monologue. But it wouldn't really be quite like this. It's obviously somewhat not real. And so I think by just having a slight gesture towards not real, um, I'm trying to open up an imaginative space for myself, but also for the reader to say, look, um, we can let our minds be a bit more free and the strange thing is, I think that that doesn't make us see reality less; it actually makes us see reality more
1: yeah, that's true i I want to ask you about formats because mm. i you seem like a writer that are acutely aware aware and like working very consciously with formats yeah in your novels. Do you want to expand on how you think about that how you think about format
2: so um you know uh If one imagines that a novel has kind of um, a language that it's built out of, it has a sort of story it's trying to tell, it has themes that it's dealing with. All of those things come together in, in a form. And when I was starting writing my first couple of novels, what I would do is I would try writing with one form, completely fail. And then try writing it again with a different form and fail. I would sort of blunder along for seven years. The first two books each took seven years. Writing a draft about once a year, each of which failed until eventually it stopped failing. And I would sort of call myself you know, a disciple of the Douglas Adams School of Writings because uh, Douglas Adams is the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he talks in one of those books about um, the secret to flying being throwing yourself at the ground and missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I would, each draft would be throwing myself at the ground, and I would you know hit. Uh, and then one day you maybe get distracted and you miss when you throw yourself, and you find oh I'm actually flying. And so eventually I'd find a form that seemed to work. In in Smoke, it was this trial, where um, you know each character was telling their version of the story. In the Rotten fundamentalist it was a dramatic monologue, a Pakistani and American meet in a bazaar in Lahore we never hear what the American has to say. And that creates a deeply unsettled and destabilized situation in which the reader has to supply half of the meaning. And so the reader becomes complicit in, in the novel and the reader manufactures the novel. I, I've I called the written fundamentalist, you know, a thriller in which nothing thrilling happens, you know. And, and the reason was because after 9-11, it was so easy to terrify people about each other, to say, that this guy is clearly a CIA agent, and you should be scared; he's going to kill Chingay. Or that Chingay is clearly a terrorist, and therefore you should be scared; he's going to kill the American. When it's actually just two people sitting down and having tea, but you give a few hints, and we are we were prone to just create this this you know bloodthirsty conflict out of a conversation. And I wanted to show how that happened, and then. In uh, how to get filthy rich in rising Asia, it was sort of a self-help book about how to get rich, but it was actually kind of the opposite of that. It was almost like a, a Sufi love story about how to transcend these sorts of things. Um, and in you know in Exit West, it was it was the, the form was um, uh, these doors were opening a bit like the doors in Narnia, you know, uh, and people could go from one place to another, and so billions of people moved and. The migration, you know, apocalypse, if you think of people moving as a kind of apocalypse, happened. But then after that, something else happened. And it turned out the apocalypse wasn't the apocalypse. It was just the stage before something else was born. And in this novel, uh, in a way, in some senses, it's like Exit West in that there's a fracture in reality. People become dark. And in some senses, it's like The Reluctant Fundamentalist because the novel chooses to tell only the story of these four white characters, and very internally. Um, and no non-white character is really given an interior position. We don't get inside the head of anybody who doesn't think of themselves as white. And some people have said, oh, well, you know, do you not care about people of color, and, you know? And, um, and I, yeah, I mean, it's the first time I've ever done this. All, all my other characters really have been people of color, so I, I, I don't think I particularly take that uh, uh, objection seriously. Um, and, and it served a function a bit like not letting the American speak in The Reluctant Fundamentalist. By not letting the Americans speak, you have to decide for yourself what you make of the situation. And in The Last White Man, by not having any non-white character speak, there's no one to tell you, are these people good, bad, what do you make of them? Is the situation OK? Should we feel this is acceptable? Not. You have to decide for yourself. No one is going to tell you whether, what, how to judge these people. And that, I think, is a more difficult and involved thing to ask of the reader, and so that's, you know, that's how it went. And um, uh, yeah, so the form really came, I guess, in, in that way, but I, I, yeah, you're right. I, I do think of form as, as at the heart of, of each book.
1: I wanted to ask you about... The, this leads us into the ethics of co-creation. Because mm. uh, one of your missions as a writer seems to be to like blur the boundaries between humans and between identities, but also between reader and writer. And you talk a lot about co-creation. Do you want to expand on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's very important, I think, to me, and I think to what literature is. So if we um, think of... of Uh, mass-reproduced storytelling. It's clear that in this historical moment, the dominant forms are film and television. Um, Those are the forms of mass-reproduced storytelling that that we get most of our stories from, that the most people see, that have the most reach. Um, But... There's a big difference between a film and tell, and I, I've, I've, in a sense, came to really understand this when a, a film was adapted from the modern fundamentalist by Mira Nair, who's a director who's become a dear friend and a director I really admire, and I think she did a wonderful job. But it's, of course, very different from the book. And, and when I watched this process, in a sense, a sort of light bulb went off for me. And I, I, I came to understand just how different these two forms were. And in a nutshell, it comes down to this, you know, when you see a film or a TV show, you see something that looks like the world. Um, it might be a world with superheroes, it might be a world where you know, we're living on Mars, but people look like people and trees look like trees and jeans you know, look like jeans and you know, hands look like hands. And, um, and you are a viewer of this, you watch that world. But when you read a book, something completely different happens. You open up this pulped wood on which is printed in ink um, letters, punctuation marks, and empty space. It doesn't look anything like the world. And then you stare at this pulped wood for hours.
1: Having you know. vivid hallucinations. Yes.
2: Having vivid hallucinations, you know, you're you're having the psychedelic, you know, psilocybin, LSD, but yet just from wood experience, you know, people are popping into your imagination and smells and touches and memories and tears and you know, but it's just a dead tree with stuff on it, right? And and you know, now. Um, it's important to, to, to just re-weird this for ourselves because we imagine that reading is far more mundane than it is. Reading is pretty much the least mundane thing that human beings do. You know, it's, it's among the most bizarre things we, we do. Looking at something that looks like the world and thinking that it's the world is not that strange. You know, even, even you know, p- potentially an animal could look at that. But, but um, you know, my dog watches many of the TV shows <laughs> with me and um, but staring at this piece of wood you know for hours and falling in love and having your heart broken and you know drifting off and you know that is a very weird thing and what's happening in that weird thing is that it's obvious that this is not just the work of the writer the writer made this half novel you know this piece of wood with stuff splattered on it the reader looks at this thing and then conjures forth an experience that we call a novel, which is very largely from the reader. And that's why readers can never agree if a film is a faithful adaptation of a book because they haven't read the same book. Each one of them has read a different version of that book. And so, um, you know, just as children play play make-believe as adults, you know, writers and readers play make-believe too. You open a book and you kind of agree to play make-believe. I'm going to play make-believe of pirates or of people turning brown or doors opening or you know whatever. And and for many hours you then proceed to do that. Now this um, this experience of co-creation is an incredibly fertile experience. You're not being told this is how the world is. You're not even being shown that this is how the world is. You are being encouraged to imagine for yourself in conjunction with the writer, but for yourself, because you're alone, um, what kind of world is this? And what does it mean to you? And the radical nature, the sort of exquisite complexity of what readers come up with and just how bizarre And, you know, potent that is, you know, when you're reading about a woman and you're a man and you're reading this experience, who are you in that moment? You know, are you the writer? Are you the reader? Are you the man reading the thing? Are you the woman that you're imagining? You know, you have no idea, actually. You're sort of all of these things. And and so it is really out of that that literature has, I think, its its power. Um, and, and it's, it's worth us sort of acknowledging the weirdness of the power of literature if we're going to take seriously what it can do. And what it can do isn't that, oh, well, you know, uh, it gets 8 billion eyeballs for, you know, 60 million you know, person hours or, you know, whatever we want to use to quantify attention capture, uh, which is how we tend to think of the importance of a medium of, of communication. It, it isn't really measurable in terms of how many eyeballs spent how long on it. Um, what is interesting is the degree to which it can create a fertile position inside an individual reader, and I think that that degree is is sort of unparalleled. You know when I read novels that really move me, I do feel as read, I 'm reading them, something very strange is going on and so and so I think you know for me, I mean partly. I write these books where, you know, we often I don't describe places and I don't use too many names and I kind of leave big empty spaces, because in a sense I feel that since the reader is going to be doing so much of the imagining, I don't want to overimagine for the reader. You know, it's a dance. I don't want to, you know, say, okay, now step here, now step here, now step back, now step forward, now hold my hand, now we'll spin. I kind of want to be like, you know, there's some music playing. You know, what do we want to do together? Um, and so, and so, so I think, you know, for me, that really is what it is. And, and also that's why, in a sense, within this novel, um, The Last White Man, there isn't really a sense of authorial judgment. It's not clear how I feel about these characters, hopefully. Um, although there's an authorial sympathy for these characters and an authorial, you could say, even love for these characters. Um, because I want the reader to, be f- to feel free to kind of imagine them for themselves. But that's really how I think of, of co-creation, and, and, and how I think that you know, literature remains an incredibly special thing. It isn't really about you know, how much time and how many people and whatever. It is about you know, the, the degree for an individual reader um, or an individual writer writing a book Um, something really special can happen. And I think that degree is potentially enormous.
1: Yeah, because you said in one of your essays, uh, in relationship to TV as the new novel, or the old novel, I think you phrased it, uh, that the novel now has the freedom to do other things. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's been said by many other people before me, but, um, uh, you know, that with the advent of photography... Right? Um, the visual arts were free to not necessarily make um, you know, realistic representation the goal. And so you have this flowering of all kinds of you know, abstract expressionism and surrealism and this and that. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff, people start splattering paint, they start doing all sorts of things. And some of them perhaps come back to a kind of realism but with a new skew. Um, in the same way, you know, uh, to create a story for me, that is built upon you know, uh, moving characters around sort of like puppets on stage, speaking all the words that they say, describing in great detail all of the backgrounds behind them, um, to me, may not be as necessary. I'm not saying other writers shouldn't do it, I'm not trying to define what literature is for others, but in my own thinking, um, it may not be as necessary when this is what television is doing. Instead, what literature can do is it can ask the reader to play make-believe again and to say, look, let's, let's do some weird things. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's write stories differently. Let's, let's skip through entire parts of the story. You know, in, in Exit West, for example, there's a moment when one of the main characters' mothers is killed and that scene happens, she dies in the middle of a sentence and the sentence never stops and we just keep going. It's not the end of a scene. It's not the end of an act. It's not the end of an episode. It's the middle of a sentence that doesn't stop. And, um, you know, if I were trying to write a TV version of that, I wouldn't write it that way. But what, um, what the novel version is, it says, look, we've, we're imagining now this character, this mother being killed in this horrible way it's in a wartime civil war situation. And the sentence won't stop. We, we are not allowed to give this space the time that it deserves. Um, and what does that do? That creates a kind of anxiety. Because who in a civil war has the time to mourn properly these deaths? You know, Who has time to say that this horrible thing has happened and now we will stop the world? We don't, actually. Um, the, the brutality of it is that, is that these basic and essential human things are not allowed to be lingered on. We're just rushed forward. And so we can get into a, something which approaches a kind of, you could say, emotional realism by departing from a televisual representation which could be its own realism. I'm not sort of saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that, that we have the opportunity to do things differently. And so, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's really what I was talking about.
1: I'm going to ask you a very basic question. Sure. Uh, do you view your writing as political? Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Why? I mean, you know... I, I sort of, I guess, grew up uh, thinking that everything was political. Uh, you know, if you write a novel about the Victorian age and these giant mansions and people are sipping tea and you don't talk about the indentured workers and slaves who are, you know, farming this tea and where the mansion's wealth comes from. That's a political act. You can say, well, this is not a political novel. It's a novel of manners, you know, but, um, but the novel of manners is built upon a system of you know, colonization and slavery, which doesn't mean that we have to say, oh, this, this, this novel should now be rejected. We shouldn't read this novel. N- not at all. Um, it just means that we, uh, because I don't think the politics of art determines necessarily the worth of art. Um, you know, some of, there are some things that I love, which I, you know, probably if I investigate the politics, I would feel you know, a bit uncomfortable.
1: Do you have an example? I
2: was just thinking as you were saying this, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's all these like, you know, quasi fascist sort of science fiction things where you're thinking, I'm not sure. Um, should I really like this? But, uh, uh, I mean, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I really enjoyed the, Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune film um, that came out recently, uh, uh, I think a year ago or something. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I loved that book growing up. Loved it. Now, Dune by Frank Herbert is, I think, the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. It tells the story of a young, let us call him white boy, named Paul, who moves to this desert planet, falls in with these Bedouin-like fremen who control this spice that really is the means of transportation, you know, quite oil-like. Um, and then engage, engage in a jihad against the rest of the universe. Now, the idea of a young white boy falling in with some Muslim dude and like going on jihad around the universe, it's hard to imagine. Post 9-11, that that is the recipe for the best-selling you know, science fiction novel of all time. Um, but as a kid, I mean, and also because so many of the words, you know, Mahdi, um, you know, they're, they're basic words which are from Islam. Uh, the religion is, they're called Zen Sunni, which is kind of interesting. It's sort of this hybrid of Sunnism and Zen. Um, there are, and, and, and of course, uh, Frank Herbert himself had spent time in, in, in Arabia, he'd spent time in Pakistan. And I knew that he was an ecologist and he dealt with like low water environments. And I lived in Lahore in this low water environment. And anyway, so it was this bizarrely, um, you know, cross-cultural text for me as a child. And when I watched the film, it was interesting because it had been completely de-Islamized, right? So you have, you know, Javier Bardem is Stilgar, and like, you know, um, uh, Zendaya is like Chani. And, and it's like, you know, it, it, the, the Fremen have become multiracial, yeah. but they have been profoundly de-Islamized. And the word like jihad doesn't appear once. Now, I can understand if you're investing in a multi-hundred million dollar film franchise that you don't really want to make a film franchise about the jihad of these like Muslim people. Um, you, you can imagine both the audience and, and your most ferocious and perhaps most dangerous critics uh, would not like you know this kind of a depiction. But um, so I, I thought it was beautiful, the film. Um, but what is the politics of, in a sense, de-Islamizing that text in that film in this way? You know, in a way, you could say it becomes more inclusive because you know the Muslim trope of jihad is, but on the other hand, you had this novel which is full of seemingly Muslimish folks with seemingly Muslimish names, you know wearing veils and like talking about jihad and and suddenly that 's kind of so so i without investigating too deeply what the politics of it all is, all I can say is I like the film and I like the book um, now um in, in, you know, so, but in my own writing i think I think, thank you. I think that you know a big part of why I write is because i 'm just not i 'm not comfortable with the world as it is um, I really haven 't been probably since I was three i tossed up in California. And, you know, my father was doing a PhD, and my mom and my dad moved there. I didn't speak a word of English. I was outside the house, this townhouse on the campus where all the graduate students lived, identical townhouses, you know, row after row. And I'm crying, and my mother comes outside, and, you know, I'm surrounded by this sort of Benetton ad of, you know, diverse children from all over the world, and looking at the neighbor, and he's not my mother, and, and the kids are sort of like, you know, um, what's wrong with him, and why can't he talk properly, and... And you know, I I, I came inside. I didn't speak English yet, and I came inside, and um, I didn't speak for a month. And I watched TV. And I just and my parents said, should we take him to a doctor? He's not talking anyway. But they were busy. It was the 70s. You know, people didn't care. <laughs> and and <laughs> a month went by. You know, and um, and then I started talking again. And I spoke in English in complete sentences. And um, and then I went back to Pakistan, and they discovered six years later I, I totally had forgotten how to speak Urdu. And um, you know, and I imagine that one month of silence as I was in between languages, how frightened I must have been to not say anything, um, and how desperate I must have been to learn English, to be staring at this TV screen, um, and how triumphant I must have been to suddenly be talking in English afterwards. Uh, but I think that idea of n- just not being entirely comfortable with the world has never left me. And so partly, I guess, what attracts to me about fiction is I get to spend part of my life not in this world, uh, but in another world, not just as an act of escapism, but also weirdly because this fictional world has some potential to reflect back on this world and maybe make this world more like the world that I would be more comfortable in. So, um, so that, I think, is in a sense, is, is the loop that I find myself uh, stuck in
1: makes me think about uh, one quote mm. from you. Uh, you said, I think this is in relationship to your writing about Pakistan, but it's, uh, with optimism comes agency. Yeah. And I think that is also applicable, is that, or my question is, is that applicable to your uh, fiction writing as well? Yeah,
2: I think it has been. I, you know, I, I, th- I, I believe that um, as the pace of technological change accelerates, it creates anxiety in us. My childhood is much more like my grandparents' childhood than it is like my children's childhood. And uh, change is happening more and more and more rapidly. Um, and we are struggling to adjust to this change. And so we become anxious. And the future itself begins to look menacing. You know, The climate will change, and migration will happen, and you know, the economy will change, and jobs will be destroyed. And you know, who knows what's going to happen? New weapons, wars. Um, and so, in a way that's difficult for younger people maybe to even fully grasp, the first 30 years of my life were spent in this sort of belief that the world would keep getting better. I mean, it sounds sort of preposterous, you know, now I tell this to people on university campuses, and uh, I start talking about 9-11, and then I, it occurs to me that they were all born after 9-11, you know? And uh, it's like talking about Pearl Harbor, or like, you know, the, uh, the Crusades, and you know, they're like, oh yeah, 9-11. And, but um, uh, uh, but the 70s and 80s and 90s, of course, countries were torn apart by civil war. There were terrible invasions, etc. But in my little slice of humanity, which I think was quite a widely held slice of humanity the sense was things were getting better. You know, people had landed on the moon and, you know, the uh, Cold War had ended and, uh, you know, Arafat and, you know, Rabin are shaking hands and, you know, a bus is set up between India and Pakistan and the Berlin Wall comes down and we're thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be great. And then, you know, around 2001, let's say, if 9-11 maybe was that dividing moment, maybe not, but around then, things suddenly change. And... um, And now, so many of us look to the future with a real sense of dread. Now, the result of this is that we engage in a kind of nostalgic politics. Because the future is frightening, we look at the past as attractive. And powerful populist leaders come and say, let me make things the way they were, in the good way. You know, let me make America great again. You know, let's let's have some Brexit. You know, let's restore Russia to its true position. Let's have real Turkishness back, or real Islam, or Hindutva in Modi's India, or let's have China recover from the century of humiliation for Xi. Or you know, it's 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 amazing in how many such otherwise seemingly completely different societies, this exact same dynamic of a nostalgic populist politics is taking hold. It cannot be a coincidence, like something is going on. And to me, I think that something is the pace of technological change, creating anxiety about the future, uh, causing us to, in a sense, recoil from the future, looking to somebody who can guarantee the past and being sucked into these uh, populist uh, you know, uh, kind of wormholes. And, um, and this will end in disaster. You know, the past was not great. That's why we all were happy to get out of it. You know, it, it, um, uh, f- partly the past is, is, is an imaginary past, right? I mean, you know, the, the past where we imagine these great things is also the past where, you know, people had slaves or where women couldn't work or where, you know, uh, minorities weren't allowed or, you know, whatever. But even aside from that, um, you know, uh, even if we believe the past was better, for my Kind of person, let's say. Um, the devastation required to our contemporary societies to go back there is uh, is is uh, incredible. You know that it, it like if you took a child and say, well, let us separate the two chromosomes of this child back into the original male and the original female, and sort of rip this child apart. Um, it's that kind of ima- uh, you know, imaginative violence that we do to a society when we say, let's go back to the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 800s you know, or the whatever. Um, and, so, and so now what can we do? Um, we're scared of the future, we're being uh, peddled the past. The past is a disaster. Um, it seems to me that the only course of option open to us is to engage in a kind of you know, critical optimism. In other words, not a naive optimism, which is let's do nothing and the future is gonna be fine. The future will clearly not be fine if we do nothing. Like global warming is not gonna be solved and racism is not gonna be solved. and you know, Inequality is not gonna be solved and the next pandemic won't be solved if we just sit here and do nothing. But, um, but, but if we engage imaginatively in trying to collectively imagine a future that we actually would like to exist, um, and then working to get there, we have a much better chance of getting there. And so, um, this is partly what I think the function of art and storytelling has been since the beginning of time. You know, some of our earliest storytelling is a kind of, what you might call a sort of spiritual storytelling. It talks about the most basic of all fears. Um, what happens to us when we die? You know, Where do we go? How do we cope with this? What do we do with it? And we, as a human civilization, came up with answers to this. You know, for some that answer is there's a heaven and a hell. For others, the answer is, you know, there's a rebirth. For others, the answer is there's a shade world. For others, the answer is, you know, whatever. But we went into this place. We went into our most basic fear. We inhabited it with stories. We came to believe in these stories. And we set the foundation in a way, for dealing with our profound fear of mortality, which makes possible a greater degree of cooperation, makes possible a different degree of openness to each other, makes possible all sorts of things. Um, and so now it seems to me that we equally need to go into our most you know, horrible fears. Um, the fear of, of cultural and ra- racial erasure. Um, the fear of, of, of being swamped with migrants, the fear of of many things. Um, to go into those spaces, to reimagine them for ourselves. Not because any one writer or any one reader will have the answer, but because if we all begin to imagine in this way, we have a much better chance of somebody coming up with something that we begin to say, wow, that's actually a kind of good idea. Maybe we should do something like that. Um, we, we have to go from a hostile future to a future that we have made um, accessible to humanity again and to one that's open to every kind of human being. You know, we, we can't have a future now which is open to the right kind of human being. It has to be open to any kind of human being. And so a new type of storytelling is required to sort of say, look, if we don't exclude people because of their color, or their race, or their gender, or their sexual orientation, or, you know, whatever, if we, you know, their religion, if we are really opening up, in a sense, the future to all of humanity, um, what kind of stories make such a future possible and desirable? And that, to me, is one of the fundamental tasks, really, for for art and for storytelling. It always has been. It remains so today. And it's something that I'm, you know, personally uh, very much engaged in.
1: Thank you. That would have been a beautiful way to end this conversation, but we're not going to. Okay. Because I have a last question sure. for you. And I'm going to go back to a time when the past was truly great, when Toni Morrison was alive. Mm. Uh, and I know you good. studied under her creative yeah. writing at Princeton, right? Uh, how was it? I've heard that you tried to, you invited her for pasta.
2: Yes, if, if she didn't come, uh, luckily. <laughs> So, you know, it was fantastic. And um, uh, Toni Morrison was obviously one of the great writers of the 20th century, but a lot of people don't know she's also one of the great readers of the 20th century. You know, she could have read uh, the cornflakes box or like, you know, a tube of toothpaste, you know, and you would think, my God, this is like a literary masterpiece. You know, she would sort of say, you know, tooth whitening action, you know, (laughs) you'd be like, chills. So she would read our stuff. Every day, like, you know, a couple, two, three students would submit their work and then she would, we'd we'd all talk about it, but she would read it partly to the class. And when she read your stuff, you know, it was hard not to think that you weren't a genius. Like, my God, you know, I've been touched by my, by heaven and my potential is, you know, uh, incredible, undeniable, you know, listen to that. Uh, It was a bit disturbing that everybody else also sounded, you know, (laughs) we were, we were a group of geniuses and, um, uh, and I think, you know, what for me was very important out of that experience was, and, and also Joyce Carol was a very important teacher of mine in, in, in university, was having these writers just take seriously what I was doing. Um, it allowed me to begin to imagine that I could do it. I didn't know any writers growing up. I didn't know anybody who wrote novels. I read a lot of novels, but I didn't know anyone who did it. And so suddenly these writers are taking my stuff seriously. And, um, you know, I thought maybe I can do it they, in a way, I think Toni Morrison's greatest gift, she taught many things, and I won't get into the lessons, but the greatest gift was, she sort of gave her students permission to believe that they could be writers. And, you know, there's nothing greater than that, that a writer can pass on to the next generation.
1: Thank you so much, and thank, thank you, you for tonight.
2: Cheers, thanks very and much. A great
1: pleasure to have you here.